This week on Policy, Guns and Money's Bigger Picture series, Peter Jennings speaks to His Excellency Shingo Yamagami, Ambassador of Japan to Australia. They discuss the evolution of Australia-Japan trade, defence and people-to-people ties, and Japan's perspective on AUKUS, the Quad and the strategic outlook in the Indo-Pacific. Ambassador Yamagami, welcome to The Bigger Picture. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Peter. Uh, It's so good to have the chance to talk to you for an extended uh, conversation for our audience. And I'd like to start with the bilateral relationship. Can you touch on what for you are the key aspects of Mm Australia-Japan ties? Well, actually, you know, simply put, uh, our relationship, you know, relationship between Australia and Japan are so, you know, wide ranging. So in my mind, there are a number of, you know, key aspects here. First is, of course, you know, uh, economic relationship. It's been often said that our trade and investment relations are complementary, uh, through Australia exporting, you know, in the first place, you know, wool, agricultural items and energy and the mineral to Japan, where Japan exporting machinery and autos. And don't forget, uh, people tend to have short memories, but we shouldn't forget for the 40 straight years from 1968 to 2008, Japan was the number one trading partner of Australia. So in a nutshell, we grew together. <laughs> we achieved economic growth, Australia and Japan, hand in hand. That's key aspect number one. Key aspect number two is this economic relationship is expanding to include such new fields as hydrogen, infrastructure development, and space cooperation. So sky is the limit. Then we have you now another emerging important area of security, defense, cooperation, including sharing of intelligence. And uh, also on top of all of these, we have very robust flow of people between our two countries. Mm. That's why I said our relationship is so wide-ranging. So something that I didn't know, uh, uh, Shingo-san, I, I should have known, but I didn't, that uh, there, there are over 100,000 Japanese people here in Australia, which makes Australia the, the third largest uh, country True. for external uh, Japanese location. Uh, the, uh, let's talk about people-to-people connections. Yes, well, well, frankly speaking, Peter, I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't know the number was that big yeah. until I came here. And more interestingly, uh, the number of Japanese, you know, residents in Australia is quite likely to catch up with, you know, that, uh, of our number in China. Mm. So mm. Australia will become the se- second largest Japanese community outside of Japan. And two factors behind this. First, uh, very active economic activities uh, crossing our border. And uh, I talked about, you know, trade relationship before, but uh, in addition to trade, uh, we all, you know, remember that Japan is the second largest source of direct investment mm. uh, into uh, Australia. And you know, the other factor is cultural relationship, actually this makes you know, very, very friendly foundation of our bilateral relationship. And one example is Australia boasts the largest 
number of Japanese learners per capita in the world. Okay. That's very, very interesting. The the part of the relationship that I know about professionally, of course, is our our defence and security ties, Uh, and they have been growing substantially for much longer than a decade. Uh, What's your view about that aspect of the relationship and and how is that going to evolve? Yes, uh, we now call it a special strategic partnership. And looking back uh, for the recent years uh, in the past, uh, I have noted a number of milestones. Uh, I would say the first one is this creation of special strategic partnership in 2014. As far as Australia is concerned, uh, I believe Japan is the only country uh, to be honored with such a naming, Mm -hmm. special strategic partner. And then uh, very close uh, exchange at the level of national leaders. For example, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison visited Japan uh, November uh, last year, despite the subsequent two weeks self-isolation. And then uh, more strikingly, uh, our Prime Minister Kishida, he made a telephone call uh, to Scott Morrison right after assuming his post. And uh, Prime Minister Morrison was the second foreign leader Prime Minister Kishida called, you know, just after U.S. President Joe Biden. I think this symbolizes the closeness of our relationship at the level of leaders. And looking uh, in the near ahead, uh, probably we will uh, able to conclude our negotiations on RAA, Mm -hmm. reciprocal access agreement uh, in the near future. And in my mind, this will constitute a game changer. Mm-hmm. This will make a framework for joint exercise and drills between Australia and Japan. So that will enable an even deeper, a de- oh, yes. even deeper cooperation. There is no question. Yeah. You know, there will be sort of you know, uh, institutionalization of framework so that we can conduct more frequent you know, joint exercise drills, both you know, in Australia and in Japan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Shingo, you, you are known to be a person who's a big fan of Australia, even before you became ambassador, but yes. certainly since uh, you've been here since February, mm-hmm. and uh, much of that in lockdown, unfortunately. But has has anything surprised you about Australia? What, what are your impressions of the place? Well, well, to be very frank with you, Peter, I know what surprised me most, and with due respect to our friends in Australia, you know, what surprised us most, my wife and me included, is the quality of food here. Right. Uh, <laughs> now, having spent some years in other English-speaking countries, I wouldn't name those countries mm. in specifics, but uh, we didn't hold high expectation for the you know, uh, quality of food, mm. but uh, just amazing. So, so impressed. Fascinating. And of course, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, quality food, you know, we are so impressed by the beauty of the nature and, you know, warmth, yes. warmth of people here. Right, right. So what are your ambitions for the relationship? Where, where would you like the relationship to be, say, in, in a decade's time? Yes. Uh, well, you know me, you know, I'm uh, 
you know, not that kind of, you know, too ambitious a figure. But uh, that said, you know, uh, since we are enjoying this excellent state of affairs, uh, and I called our bilateral relationship, you know, special strategic partnership, what I would like to do uh, as a humble ambassador is to, you know, put more meat to this important uh, relationship. In other words, I would like to you know, elevate our close uh, cooperation uh, to even higher you know, plateau. Mm. Uh, in that regard, I think you know, both of us countries, you know, Australia, Japan, being key members of the Indo-Pacific region, uh, we we can do more in terms of realizing a free and open, open in the Pacific. Uh, for example, you know, we have been doing a lot, uh, in areas like, you know, South China Sea, you know, we, you know, conduct a joint transit exercise and so on. But now, if you look at the situation, uh, across the Taiwan Strait, uh, I'm quite sure there is more we can do together. In terms of keeping, you know, peace and stability in the East China Sea, so I think our areas of cooperation are expanding day by day, you know, month by month, and year by year. Now, I wanted to get your views about some of the big strategic developments that we're facing. Uh, Prime Minister Kishida welcomed the arrival of AUKUS last month. Why has the Japanese government been so positive about this development? You're quite right uh, about Prime Minister Kishida and uh, even before Kishida-san you know, expressed his welcome uh, for the creation of AUKUS, uh, it was you know, expressed you know, by Foreign Minister Motegi and then uh, former Prime Minister Suga. So uh, I think uh, you know, this high level you know, uh, you know declaration of you know strong welcome uh, for the creation of AUKUS I think comes from Japanese recognition that AUKUS is very important in terms of improving deterrence in the Indo-Pacific region. So the key message is uh, deterrence. Mm. And here, uh, I think you know, Japan and Australia can do uh, a lot more in terms of contributing to the peace and stability of our region. So is there uh, a special role for Japan as, as a partner of AUKUS? Uh, how do you see that evolving? Well, uh, I understand that uh, you know, first, you know, focus of AUKUS will be the you know, uh, development of nuclear power submarines for Australia, but it will go on to you know next phases, you know, including you know cybersecurity or you know artificial you know intelligence and quantum technology and so on. So uh, we have been told that uh, there are some instances or areas where AUKUS members, you know, may need, you know, Japanese cooperation and participation. And we are more than willing to, you know, uh, do our contribution. Uh, and, um, of course, the, the other acronym that everyone is uh, reading about these days is, is the QUAD, mm -hmm. which, of course, brings uh, Japan, India, Australia and the US together. Mm -hmm. What's your perspectives on prospects for the QUAD? 
Well, uh, I have been involved in, uh, you know, sort of, you know, uh, nascent period uh, behind the creation of Quad. And, uh, you know, my take is, uh, gee, how far yeah. we have come. It's just amazing. Now we agree to have this summit meeting, you know, annually among four members. And this certainly carries a historic historic significance. But not only that, uh, I think the scope to be covered by, you know, cooperation among Quad members is so wide-ranging and far-reaching, including such areas as infrastructure development, counterterrorism, cybersecurity, trade and investment liberalization, humanitarian assistance, and disaster relief. So uh, I'm very much optimistic about the future of Quad. Uh, One specific example is recently they came up with this idea of providing at least 1 billion doses of vaccines by the end of 2022. So with these four countries joining forces together, this is the kind of figure we are talking about quite massive yes. contribution to the global community. I, I think it's uh, interesting, Shingo, that the Quad has sort of designed like a big security agenda for itself, not not so much military security, but all of the wider mm-hmm. areas around it. Um, and then inside that, we have uh, the, the trilateral Australia-US-Japan mm-hmm. relationship, which has become a, a bit of an engine room oh, yes. for defence cooperation mm-hmm. as such. So we tend not to talk quite so much about this compared to AUKUS and the Quad, but really, you know, this to me is one of the um, one of the success stories of mm-hmm. regional diplomacy over the last decade. That's true, and uh, you know, I couldn't agree more with you, Peter. After all, Quad is a vehicle for promoting uh, this you know, shared vision of free and open in the Pacific. So behind you know this you know free and open in the Pacific, there are such important you know principle as a rule of law, or pursuing of you know economic prosperity and commitment to peace and stability. So all in all, I think you know these principles and concepts. Uh, make international public good, which will benefit all members of this region. So there is a lot of, you know, room, you know, not only Quad members, but also, you know, like-minded countries in Southeast Asia or even European countries to cooperate mm-hmm. with the Quad members. So, Shingo, it's it's not a coincidence that these new groupings are coming up at a time of growing concern about the People's Republic of China. What's what's your perspective on the balance of risks and opportunities represented by China? Well, make no mistake, Peter. You know, uh, uh, you and I, you know, all know that uh, we are facing the common challenge and opportunities posed by the rise of emerging powers. In that regard, you know, Quad members, you know, Australia, Japan, US, India, are all in the same, you know, same boat. Mm. But not only, you know, these four countries, there are a number of other countries, like-minded, you know, partners facing same challenges and opportunities. In that regard, you know, Quad is not an exclusive club. Quad is not an Asian NATO. There is a lot we can do together in order to realize a free and open Indo-Pacific. And here, yes, China has been mentioned, but Quad is 
no, more than China. After all, we are looking at the bigger picture.、Mm. We are looking at the regional order, how to maintain rules-based order, how to maintain and strengthen peace and prosperity for all in the region. And so that、uh, that is a historic nature of our endeavors behind the court. Do you think that China is locked onto this more assertive course, or is there a chance that、uh, China could revert back to peaceful rise? Well, this is like you know、uh, reading the crystal ball, and it's not for me to predict you know China's trajectory. But、uh, let me put it this way: you know, looking back,、uh, there are two you know important、uh, incidents、uh, in the recent past. First,、uh, we welcomed China into the WTO,、uh, expecting that. China would eventually abide by the、uh, rules-based order and behave in accordance with WTO rules. The other incident was, you know, this arbitration in the South China Sea. Every member of the ANCLOS knows arbitration ruling is final and binding. But what happened? We have been witnessing unilateral attempts to challenge the status quo in the form of militarization in the South China Sea, or in the form of economic coercion against Australia. So it's fair to say many observers are so disappointed, and、uh, we have to ask our questions. Were our expectations satisfied? If not, how can we achieve it? So here comes the importance of deterrence. After all, we have to maintain our prosperity, peace, and stability in this region. So yes, we would like to welcome them、uh, into the rules-based order. But at the same time, if rules are not observed. Uh, we have to resort uh, to deterrence uh, in order to maintain prosperity and stability. So、uh, that's a kind of you know、uh, you know、uh, route we have to take、uh, from now on. Well, speaking of deterrence, I'm interested in your perspective on Taiwan. Clearly, Taiwan is under growing pressure from China. What should we do about that?、Mm. Well,、uh, I think、uh, you know any student of international politics and、uh, international relations diplomacy, including my humble self, should be fully aware of the importance of Taiwan. After all, Taiwan, you know, like Australia and Japan, do share you know basic values such as democracy. Market economy, the rule of you know, law, and Taiwan, you know, has more than twenty-three million、uh, population, close to that of Australia.、Uh, not only that, Taiwan makes a focal point for manufacturing of important products, including semiconductors. In other words, Taiwan makes an important part. Of our supply chains, 
So uh, this is that importance of Taiwan uh, we are talking about, and we need now our best efforts to you know keep peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. But uh, taking advantage of this opportunity, I would highlight the importance of entire you know East China Sea. Mm. Taiwan makes an important part. Of you know that sea, but we all know before the tensions across the Taiwan Strait uh, became disheartened, there are a number of you know attempts uh, committed to challenge the status quo around Japanese islands of Senkaku. Mm-hmm. So we have to take these two issues seriously so that we can work you know together. For the peace and stability of the East China Sea, what encouraged me is in the recent you know, two plus two joint statement by Japan and Australia, uh, the four ministers, you know, they understand the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and they are encouraging the peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues. This is the first time you know, Australia and Japan mentioned. Taiwan in their joint statement, but that symbolizes the seriousness of the situation and the need for our engagement. Yes, Shingo, I've I've been interested to see a, a sort of a growth of the prominence and influence of Japanese foreign policy over the last decade or so, and and I'm I'm interested to hear you talk about Japan's broader regional strategy. Uh, it seems to me we're finding some core Japanese ideas are sort of moving into the general diplomatic use, and of course you've you've talked about the free and open Indo-Pacific concept. So, what what's your sense of um, Japan's broader regional strategy? Well, Peter, you know you have and I have you know lived long enough to understand that uh, success has many phases. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, you know, uh, you know, plan and you know, concept, as you mentioned, are certainly you know legitimate, and Japan is proud to be uh, you know legitimate, you know, father. Uh, no, could be one of them. Uh, but anyway, this you know, for example, this FOIP, you know, free and open in the Pacific, you know, is an important concept that the current Prime Minister Kishida broadly promoted to the international community during his tenure as foreign minister. And how come these you know, concepts such as free and open in the Pacific or arc of freedom and prosperity or Asia's diamond, security diamond, all came from you know, Japanese you know, leaders and foreign ministers? I think two reasons here. One, history. And second, geography. Mm-hmm. Japan has been on the forefront of uh, modernization throughout its uh, history, especially since uh, the mid-19th century. We had to go through some turbulent times of, you know, uh, strengthening military and enriching country at the time. You know, we are sort of inundated by waves of, you know, imperialism, colonialism, uh, you know, uh, uh, with its own, you know, bitter uh, lessons mm-hmm. you know, learned throughout history. So history, you know, certainly weighs very, very big on the mind of Japanese policymakers, but also geography. 
And uh, although you know、uh, we may look, you know, looking at Japan from America or Europe, you know, Japan is you know far away country. So you may say, you know, like Australia, you know, Japan could enjoy luxury of distance. <laughs> But in the case of Japan, there are a number of geopolitical issues, you know, taking place in the vicinity of Japan. For example, in our neighborhood. We have three countries with nuclear arsenal, yeah. Yeah. so that kind of you know severity or seriousness of the security environment is you know forcing Japan to come up with a specific and effective response. Yes, yes, that's fascinating. Well, let, let's talk though about soft power、uh, because I think the the other thing that's very interesting about Japan is that it has it has quite a A soft power influence around the world, and perhaps particularly so in the Indo-Pacific. Well, what, what's your view? In, in, what is, in your view, the strength of Japanese soft power? Well, I, th- I don't think we are up to the level of Australia, which enjoys, you know, koalas and kangaroos. <laughs> But that said, I think uh, uh, if I may, you know, humble enough to share, you know, Japanese characteristics. I think first, you know,、uh, our cuisine is something、uh, we can proudly share with, you know,、uh, anybody from overseas. Before I came to Canberra, I happened to visit、uh, Hakba, a famous,、mm-hmm. you know, ski tour destination for, you know, Aussies, and I astonished. I was astonished to see some signs of wagyu <laughs> on some restaurants. <laughs> And this is a joint efforts by Australia and Japan, and、uh, that's the second part of、uh, so-called soft power is certainly Japanese anime and TV shows. Right after I came here, I know、uh, I was asked by a number of you know Aussie dignitaries, you know, including you know Julie Bishop and David Gillespie, where is Shintaro?、Mm. And、uh, of course, you know, famous samurai Shintaro.、Yeah. So I wish my name had been, you know, Shintaro rather than Shingo. <laughs> The third point is game and software. Right. Of course, this is a headache for you know every parents, Aussie、yes. or Japanese. But、uh, PlayStation, Nintendo, certainly dominated many households. So all in all, you know, we are glad. You know, somehow. Japanese, you know, products or Japanese, you know, cuisine were there to enrich and you know raise sort of livability or quality of life in so many corners of the world. But that said,、uh, I hasten to add, you know, this soft power stuff is not one way street. When it comes to you know Japan Australia relationship. We are enjoying, you know, many many products or individuals with tremendous, you know, soft power of Australian origin. <laughs> One example is、yeah. Olivia Newton-John. Right. Just yesterday, the Japanese government, you know, decided announced to, you know, uh, uh, award uh, Emperor's Medal to Olivia, and that was、uh, most fascinating news. I've ever received since my arrival in Canberra. Yeah,、oh, it was a it was a wonderful honour. I thought, and、uh, and thank you for that. Now, I I know you're a great fan of Australia, and and we can hear that in your your comments today. But not necessarily are you a fan of、uh, wildlife, Shingo. Can you tell the story 
of some of your encounters with the embassy <laughs> magpies? Well, magpies, but uh, you know, I I thought you know first, this is a bird of terror. <laughs> I wrote about it in an embassy, you know, newsletter. Uh, but since then, you know, I kept on receiving a number of advice coming from my Aussie friends, and some of you know, them told me, just feed them. You know, <laughs> magpies do not attack people who feed them. And you know, my wife, you know, Kaori is an ultimate appeaser, <laughs> so she keeps on feeding, and I just stand behind her. So that I can sort of, you know, ingratiate myself, you know, with the residence magpies. So you know what happened recently? One of the magpies suddenly came to me, mm-hmm. flew to me, and he stuck on the top of my head. <laughs> I was kind of scared. Is he going to peck me into my head? He didn't do that. He just flew away. So he was trying to tease me, but my friends tell me, "Oh, it's one sign that you are being treated as an Aussie." <laughs> what a compliment! <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, uh, the, it's it's a story ultimately where they will train you. You see, you may think you're training the magpie, but really they are training you to feed them. That that I think is how how it works. W- were you surprised that this became such a matter of? Public interest. Uh, I was really surprised, but uh, and I, I was also pleasantly, you know, pleasantly surprised to really understand the degree of affection towards nature, including you know, birds, you know, animals and plants, held by a number of Australians, mm. and I think that makes Australia really, really special. Mm. Well, Shango, it's been a delight to talk with you. Do, you. do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share about the bilateral relationship? Well, uh, actually, you know, uh, this is relating to you know bilateral you know relationship, and uh, the one thing you know, if I can be very very frank, you know, with you, Peter, you know, from time to time, I'm uh, somewhat appalled to hear some Australians calling this country. A middle power, mm. uh, but from my perspective, you know, looking at uh, agile military, robust intelligence activities, and active diplomacy, and also I talked about Olivia. You know, all these are everywhere. You know, around the globe. How could you call such a country a middle power? It's not a middle power at all. You know, in my mind, Australia is a global power. So I, as a representative of Japan, Japanese ambassador to Australia, I am more than delighted to work even more closely with this global power called Australia. Shingo, a global power with magpies. <laughs> it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, for having me. You've been listening to Policy, Guns and Money. The Aspie Podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon.